Hear now the word of God. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others say, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray for him to do that. Almighty God of heaven and earth, you've shown yourself to us. You came to needy men and women, boys and girls, telling us the truth about yourself and about us. Would you show us that truth this morning, taking the blinders off, freeing us from our distractions, freeing us from self-righteousness. Fix our eyes on you and not on earthly concerns, not on our devices, not even on other plans that we have made for later today. Instead, O God, fix our eyes on you and show us our hearts whether there is any sinful way within us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Any time that you deal with error in some form, there is a negative side to it. Uh, for example, if I don't know how often you get visited by the Mormons in my neighborhood. The Mormons come by, I think, every two to three months. Uh, and whenever this happens, it feels like we almost have the same conversation each time. And uh, it almost always comes down to the question of whether or not Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God or not. Now, there is a place where we do need to say the negative thing, the thing that says, no, he was not a prophet. He was a huckster and he was a liar. And here's why. And maybe give your reasons. And maybe you wouldn't say huckster and liar because you're trying to be nice to the the young men. Um, But you, you need to say it one way or another, though. However, if all we ever do is talk to unbelievers about why they are wrong, 
we have not been faithful in what God has given us to do because we need to set the truth before them. It isn't enough to just say, don't believe that. And so in the case of, of the Mormons, at least when, when they come and when I have time, and it's, it's always at dinner, I don't know why, uh, but when it's not at dinner time and I have time to talk to them, what I try to do is make sure the conversation comes around, not just to telling them why Mormonism is wrong, but making sure that as they leave, they hear the truth. We need to do our best in the conversation to set Jesus Christ forth as the Savior and God of humanity. We need to make sure that when they leave, they know that there is no good work they can do. There is no ceremony they can participate in. There is nothing they can do to make themselves righteous in God's sight. So there needs to be a positive case made. There needs to be something positive that they leave us knowing. John Newton was very famous for having a very positive approach to dealing with error. Um, We know him as the, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, but he was also very well known Uh, In England, as a man who, it's not that he avoided controversy, but he certainly didn't pursue needless controversy. And someone once asked him, how do you deal with error? And this is what he said. My principal method of dealing with heresy is by establishing truth. My enemy may propose to fill a basket with tares. Now, if I can fill it first with wheat, I shall defy his attempts. So what Newton is saying here is that the best defense against error is a positive approach, a long-term positive approach of teaching the truth and making sure that people hear the truth because truth is better at fighting error um, than, than, than just being negative, than just telling someone that they're wrong. And so anytime we want to evangelize someone or discuss the truths of Christianity with someone, we need something more to say than just that's a heresy or you're wrong or you're going to hell. Get out of here. That is that's not the full faithful approach to evangelism. And if that's all we do, we will succeed in one half of it. We will succeed in making someone feel condemned, but we won't succeed in telling them the truth that they need so that they can be saved. And last week, we began to talk about how Paul engaged with the philosophers in Athens. And we observed that they had three things in common. They had a common impulse. They had a common creator. And they will have a common judgment. And last week, we looked at the first one. We looked at the common impulse of the people. And their common impulse was to worship. They were very religious people. They were instinctive worshipers, but they worshiped the wrong things. They worshiped idols. They worshiped created things instead of the God who made them. And so Paul did the negative work in the first point of saying, look, this is idolatry. Your right to want to worship, but not about the one that you're worshiping. And so this morning, we're going to look at the two remaining points where Paul positively sets the truth before the people. It's not enough for him to tell them what not to do. Don't worship idols. He still has to set before them this positive case of who God is and how they can be saved and how they can be righteous in his sight. Now, I said this last week. I want to repeat it. It's what we need to see in this passage is that the gospel not only stands up to scrutiny, but it really answers the deepest cries of all human hearts. That's 
That's really what we see here in this passage, because Paul is speaking to a very critical crowd. He's speaking to a group that is totally inclined to despise him and despise his message. But what they don't know is that the message he is giving them is the message they have been yearning for and in their hearts they need more than anything else. So last week we saw point one, that they, were, that they had this common impulse to worship. But point two, this morning of the passage, is that they have a common creator. He sets forth his positive vision of who God is. And understand, before I read this, this would have been entirely foreign to them. This would not have been anything similar to what they believed as Athenians. And so beginning in verse 23, listen to his positive vision of God. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is an incredibly densely packed presentation of who God is. And, and what's interesting is it's, it's made to a group of people who are used to having very conflicted understandings of God. And what Paul is telling them is, in essence, two really major principles that these people would all disagree with. The first is this. The true God is independent of nature. He's separate from nature. And the, se- and the second thing that he tells them here is that the true God is sovereign over mankind. So where does God stand in relation to the world and where does God stand in relation to mankind? He's over both and he's not dependent on either of them. So let's just open each of those up a little bit so that it doesn't sound so philosophical and talky. Um, First, he says that God is independent of nature. Paul is talking to a group of thinkers who are used to thinking of the gods as being powerful, but they still picture them as sort of like superheroes. The way that we think of, of superheroes, you know, they, they see the gods as being like them. They're just stronger. Um, they're like us. They just have more powers. Um, they look like us. They're just more handsome or they're just more beautiful. And so just like superheroes, though, the Greeks, they saw their gods as constantly bickering and constantly fighting. But here's, here's the problem. Even for the Greeks, their gods may have been powerful, but they still lived in this world. They still lived among us. They still lived in the sea and lived on the mountains and lived in the forests and lived on the islands and all all that. Um, They might be strong, but they still spend their day to day on the earth. It's just they live on a high mountain, see. But Paul says something so different. He says, no, no, no. God doesn't need any of this at all. The true God made all of this. It came from him. And he doesn't depend on it in, in the least. Ultimately, there's, there's nothing you can do for him that he can't do for himself. Ultimately, there's no place that you can make where he can live. All of this depends on him. And he depends on none of it. 
And so you see the difference between Paul and the Athenians at this point. Paul is setting forth for them a very different vision of the world and a very different vision of the creator. He's basically saying God stands apart from creation. God is not a part of the world and he doesn't need the world. The other part of God's presentation is that not only is God sovereign over nature, but he's sovereign over mankind. After after he talks about how God is independent from nature, he talks about humans and he says, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul is saying, we come from him. There is nothing we can give him that he doesn't already have. And he even goes so far as to say that not only did God make you, but he determined where you would be born, where you would live, and what your life would be like. One very serious error that we see in the world around us today is this, is this very common belief that, that God created because he needed relationships with us, because he was lonely, um, because he, he somehow needed us to talk to or to commune with us. Um, I thought this for years. This is what I was actually taught. God, the reason God created all things was because he wanted relationships. Now, it's one thing to say that God seeks a relationship with us. It's another thing to say that that's the purpose for why we were created, because God needed something. But see, Paul says word for word here, God created, but not because he needed anything. Those are his words. He says God did not need anything. He needed nothing. He did not create so he could get to know you. He wants you to get to know him, but he doesn't need you to. Uh, He has three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and all three persons are perfect and full and absolutely pure. He is not empty. He is the opposite of empty. He is absolutely full. He loves you, and he set his love upon you if you're his child, but he created you to reflect his glory, not to fill up his own emptiness. Those are very different reasons. Now, at the same time, though, Paul does say he may not have needed us, but he did create mankind with a purpose. He built something into us. He says he created us that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. The best picture I can think of for what Paul is getting at here is imagine a blind person feeling in the dark of an unfamiliar place and they're looking around for something. And Paul gives us an example of what that looks like in the world we live in. Because what does it look like to grope for God in the dark? Well, he looks at the Greeks and he says, look at them. They've been doing this from the very beginning. The Greeks have been feeling around for God the entire time. As long as they've been doing philosophy, they've been trying this. And and to prove that they've been doing this, he quotes from two of their philosophers. The first one he quotes from is Epimenides. You might see in the the text that there are these quotation marks around these statements. In him we live and move and have our being. Those are both quotes, but they're not quotes from the Bible. They're quotes from secular philosophers that the Athenians would have known. The first one is this fellow named Epimenides of Crete. And he wrote about 600 years before this phrase, in God we live and move And have our being, which is just an extraordinary thing for a Greek writer to say. 
And then the second is another Greek poet, and his name is Aratus. And Aratus was talking about Zeus, and he says, for, even, for we are even his offspring. And so, so for Paul, these two quotes that he brings up here, they show us that Aratus and Epimenides and all of these Greeks were made in God's image and groping after him and never, ever finding him. They've been grasping after God for 600 years at least, going back to Epimenides, and here they are, and they still have a statue to the unknown God. Their search has brought them nowhere. And this is the part where as Paul is speaking and he's making his case and he quotes from these men, I think Paul anticipates someone wants to argue with him, and they want to say something, to, something like this. Well, why has God been hiding himself from us? We've been looking for him in good faith, and we can't find him. But see, Paul keeps going, and he says, the fault's not with God, because, Paul says, he isn't far from us. He hasn't fled. In our groping, we should have found him. We should have found him by now, because he's all around us, and he made us. We are without excuse. The heavens declare his glory. We know he's there. He's not silent. So the problem isn't that God has abandoned us or that he's far away. The problem is with us. The problem is sin. See, we're standing right there and he's right there. But because of sin, we don't get it. Because we don't see him because of sin, he's right in front of us. But sin has blinded our eyes and dulled our sense of touch. Sin has made us not only blind to God, but it has stolen our sense of touch for God or taste for God or hearing for God. Uh, By nature, we we want him in a sense, right? There's some emptiness here. There's that impulse to worship. But when we get to him, we don't want him. No, 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 not you. Because he calls us to give our lives to him. But we want to keep our lives for ourselves, And so we find gods that don't ask anything of us, or at least that we think don't ask anything of us. Um, We might see or hear or taste or smell something divine, but we go the wrong way with it. We say, I want to worship, but let me set my hope on this thing here or this person who makes me happy or this thing that I can control. See, the problem for us is not a problem of knowledge. There's a fancy word for that. It's epistemology. Our problem is not epistemology. Our problem is not that we don't know. The problem on our part is moral. That's Paul's whole argument at the beginning of the book of Romans. We know he's there. We know right from wrong. The heavens declare his glory. All of creation tells us that God is there. And we don't like it. We know there's a judge But we don't like the judge. And so Paul's picture here is we're morally deficient, but we're made in his image. So we want him in a sense, and we hate him in a sense. We need him, but we find him repellent. You see this tug of war happening in the human heart here. And that's why Paul can say that God calls us to repent of not finding him because it is our fault. In essence, Paul says, these idols are evidence that you've known God. You've known him and known him, but you've refused to follow him. 
Paul has something in common with these philosophers that he's speaking to. Paul and the, and the philosophers have a common creator. They have the same creator. The same creator who made the heavens and the earth made all of us saint and sinner alike. Third and finally, there is a common judgment. He begins by saying that before God overlooked the ignorance of men, like these philosophers standing around arguing on Mars Hill, uh, they got away with it for hundreds of years. Um, It's not as though they avoided judgment, but they avoided being confronted with the alternative. And now something's changed. Paul has appeared in this place And he brings this message to them and Mars Hill turns a corner. They are now without excuse because they have been presented with this message and with this warning. And the warning is the application. Um, The application is one we've seen Paul give to other people before. It's not as though this is the first time he's called on his listeners to repent. Uh, and, And that is his application. He says, repent. Repent of your willful ignorance. Repent of ignoring God. Repent of following your own way and making up your own path. God overlooked it all before, but something has happened. His son has been raised from the dead now. The the resurrection has happened. The age to come has begun, and you can't ignore the truth anymore. Now, why repent, right? Why not just keep living their own lives the way they want to live? Why not live life on their terms the way they're used to? And the answer is simple. Word for word, Paul says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, the philosophers are listening and they fixate on that very last thing, that thing about the resurrection. And they want to argue about the resurrection, but don't you miss Paul's argument. You should repent because God is going to judge how you used your life. He's going to look at whether you were perfectly righteous or whether you weren't perfectly righteous. He is going to judge you. He's going to put you under the microscope and look at your life and your history and the list of things that you've done. And then Paul says this, he says, we know the judgment that's coming is real because the judge is real. And we know the judge is real because he raised his son up. So so for him, the judgment is as certain as the resurrection. In a sense, these philosophers have something right when they want to fixate on the resurrection. Because if, if people don't rise from the dead, then this judgment is nothing to be concerned about. Both of these groups do not believe in an afterlife that he's talking to. So for them, the resurrection makes Christianity implausible. It makes it hard to believe. They have a commitment to there being no afterlife. They have an intellectual commitment to there being no judgment coming. So here's the important thing. That belief they have about the resurrection, it's not in good faith. It's not honest or praiseworthy. In fact, they've been told the truth, and because they're blind, they reject the resurrection. They say, it's not possible. How do I know? Because I figured out an argument that I think 
makes it implausible. So they've, they've set for themselves this standard that says resurrections don't happen. Therefore, Paul's message isn't true. And so what they do is they have this argument that they use as sort of a shield to hide behind to avoid the truth of what Paul is saying. And so as long as our heart is committed to hiding from God, we can always keep coming up with reasons not to believe. We've got our idols to protect. Even if we don't believe, we are very religious. And as long as our heart is committed, we can always find perceived problems with Christianity to protect us from really being confronted. Because if we're confronted, we'll have to change. If we're confronted and we hear the truth and we see the truth for what it is, we have to give our idols up. But they're precious to us. See, the Greeks had been doing it for as long as they'd been doing philosophy, and they're doing it right now. They, they take this significant life-altering message, and they intellectualize it. Come back, Paul. Let's argue about this some more later. They have more fight in them yet. And so as long as they treat this like it's an abstract discussion or a battle of ideas, they can make a game of it, and they can hide behind it. And people do that all the time. But by God's grace... It gets through to some of them. See, some of them see that there are real eternal stakes here. Some of them see that with his application, Paul just took this out of the realm of debate and out of the realm of academics, and he brought it into real life. If I get these ideas wrong, I don't just lose an argument. I lose my soul. I can't hide behind these debates anymore. So I have two applications, each of them, sort of depending on where you stand at the moment. My first application is for those of you who are are here and you're skeptical of Christianity. Um, You're skeptical of the claims of Jesus and you're skeptical of the message of the Bible. And, And my application for you is to look at the arguments that are keeping you back. Look at the things that you you believe about Christianity that are implausible or make it hard to accept that it's true. Um, By the way, I'm assuming you have some kind of argument, something you tell yourself that keeps you from believing. Um, Let me challenge you with this. Examine the arguments that you have against Christianity and ask yourself this question. Why do I find Christianity implausible? What is it that I believe about the world around me that makes believing Christianity difficult? Have I decided that miracles don't happen and they cannot happen? Where did I get that belief from? Who taught me that? Why do I believe that? Do I assume it about the world? Did I learn by examining the world that only physical things exist and that miracles cannot happen? Is it possible to know for certain that miracles can't happen so that I can write them off? Where did I get that belief from? Maybe you've decided you don't like what Christianity teaches. Um, Maybe you don't like its teachings about human sexual morals. What assumptions do you have about human behavior and human morality that tell you that Christianity's teachings are inferior? Where did you get those beliefs from? Did you get them from the culture? Do you really believe the culture is in a better position to decide what's right and wrong? Is that trustworthy? 
Has that culture had to change its beliefs before? Compare that to Christianity, whose teachings on human sexuality have been the same for 2,000 years, and even further back when you include Judaism. Because once you know the arguments, ask yourself this question, where did I get these, these beliefs from? And ultimately, every single answer ultimately comes down to you and to your preference and what you want the world to be like. And yet Paul comes out here today and he speaks to these philosophers and he says, the world is outside of you. You don't get to decide what's true and what's not. You don't get to choose. You don't get to decide it. It is is what it is regardless of what you think. Whether you like it or not, recognize you've been building everything you believe around your idol of self, just like the Athenians have been doing. Do you see it? There, there are intellectual arguments to be had. There are conversations. There are questions to be answered. But at the end of the day, this is a spiritual and moral issue, not mainly an intellectual issue. It comes back to heart commitments. It comes back to the issue of idols. Everyone's got them. And to the unbeliever, Paul can say this. He can look at your life, whether you're whether you're an atheist or whether you're any other kind of unbeliever, and he can say, I see that in every way you are very religious because I've seen your idols. The challenge he makes to you is this, put your idol down because a judgment's coming. And this is real life hanging in the balance. Now, on the other hand, if you're a Christian here today and you've you've been born again and you're trusting in Christ, let me remind you of what I said last week. When we evangelize people, we are calling them to reject their idols. We are calling them to reject the very things that their whole life and hope are being built upon and built around. But if that makes you feel discouraged, if it makes you feel discouraged to think that that this is the impossibility of the task that's been set before us, I want you to understand this. You are right. The task before us is impossible. At least without God doing a work. And I want you to know that he does, because I have a few names for you. Dionysius, the Areopagite. Damaris. And according to Luke, others with them. As impossible as it is, Luke tells us that they heard Paul speaking. They heard this message preached. And the impossible actually became possible. And it didn't just become possible, it actually became certain. They believed. And they heard the message and they received the truth. And many mocked, many of them sent them away with laughter and rejected them. And yet what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so you have a handful of people who hear this message and they do repent of their ignorance. They do repent of these things that they've been saying no to. And then they're awakened to new life. And this is what I want to leave you with. The discussion has to happen. Peter tells us that we do need to answer people's questions for the hope that lies within us. And yet we should do so with respect. And what happens here is God sets before us the difficulty of the task, the difficulty of sharing the gospel, the difficulty of believing the gospel sometimes. And yet he sets before us the hope Even Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris 
can have their hearts open, just like God opened Lydia's heart and opened Paul's heart and has opened people's hearts from the beginning. He has been at work and he keeps doing it and he will keep doing it. And that person that you're talking to or that person you're thinking of talking to, he can open their heart too. Don't lose heart. Share the gospel because God can break through even the most stubborn heart just like he does here in our text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the nature of unbelief in others and in ourselves. Because even your saints know what it is to experience doubt. Even your own people know what it is to struggle with what is and isn't true. Won't you help us to see and understand and in so doing, see for ourselves that what we ultimately need is not cleverness or a high IQ or some perfect, flawless argument, but what we really need is your spirit. What we really need is a heart change. And so does every person that we share your word with. Be our God and give us a full dependence on you, not just in how we think, but in what we love, tear down our idols and set yourself in their place. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.